Hello, everybody. I am John Allen, the editor of Crux, and this is Last Week in the Church, the show relentlessly and unalterably devoted to bringing you news you already know, stale stories because they have already happened. I hope you had a great weekend. Happy Monday to you. Uh, if you are a college football fan in America, this was a kind of crazy weekend. I mean, think about it. You wake up this morning. Clemson and Ohio State are 9 and 10, respectively, in the AP poll. Oregon is at number 3, and Cincinnati is in the top 8. All of which goes to show that Keats was, all re- was, was correct, and that is, things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. Uh, shout out, by the way, on the subject of sports to the Italian men's volleyball team that won the European Championship over the weekend. Uh, it has been a kind of crazy few days on the Vatican beat as well. Well, what we've got for you today is the Pope on the plane. Pope Francis gave another one of these celebrated in-flight press conferences on his way home from Hungary and Slovakia Wednesday. He touched on denying communion to pro-choice Catholic politicians, gay marriage, and COVID vaccines, and whether they're a good idea. In addition to that this week, we also have of AUKUS, Anglo-Saxons, and Alliances. Uh, The United States, Great Britain, and Australia essentially rewrite the rules of the global political game. Question, can Italy and the Vatican, in that uncertain context, make beautiful music together? That's what we've got for you this week on the other side of a short break, so please stick around. All right, we begin this week with the Pope on the plane. Now, from the very beginning, Pope Francis has adopted this custom of giving press conferences to the journalists traveling with him aboard the papal plane during his return flight. Uh, Also from the very beginning, these things have been blockbusters. You will remember that the very very first such in-flight press conference came in July 2013 when the Pope had traveled to Brazil for World Youth Day. That was the press conference of what is, to this day, probably the most celebrated soundbite of the Francis pontificate. Who am I to judge? With regard, in that case, of course, to gay clergy and, more broadly, LGBTQ plus persons. Now, uh, the most recent case in point was Wednesday. Pope Francis had just wrapped up a brief trip to Hungary and Slovakia. Uh, And, uh, as ever, uh, he came back to the rear compartment of the plane to take questions from journalists. Uh, Now, let me just say, I no longer make the papal flights. One of the great joys of being in charge of my small operation is that I no longer have to do that. I can punt it to somebody else. But, you know, for my sins, uh, back in the day, uh, I made dozens and dozens uh, of these papal trips under all three recent popes, John Paul II, Benedict, and Francis. Uh, And I've always said uh, of papal travel that it is a dismal experience uh, in many ways. First of all, dirty little secret, it's the the journos, the press corps, that basically subsidizes papal travel. Because, you know, whenever the Pope wants to go someplace, on the outbound flight, he rents uh, a jet from Alitalia. And then he takes the national carrier of the country he's visiting back, usually, though not always. In any event, you got to pay for those charters. 
How does the Vatican come up with the cash? Well, uh, they take all the journalists, they make us sit in coach, but we have to pay business class airfare. It is a raw deal. In addition to that, generally speaking, when you're back in steerage, uh, the, the seats are wildly uncomfortable, and you are surrounded uh, by all of these, you know, TV cameras and radio equipment and all that stuff. It's usually crowding in on you. Uh, it's like being in a sardine can. Uh, and the food is typically dreadful. Uh, by the time they get done serving uh, the front cabin where the Pope and all the VIPs are and so on, and they get back to us, they're out. They're either out of everything or whatever they have is lukewarm and runny and dreadful. So in general, I would not wish, the, wish this on my worst enemy. But I will give papal travel this. Under Pope Francis, the in-flight entertainment is spectacular. Uh, and we got another case in point this past Wednesday. Uh, now, heading into this, if you were going to organize a betting pool about the kinds of questions reporters were going to want to ask, it was a pretty safe bet what would be at the top of the Americans list. Uh, because this is the first opportunity American journalists have had for FaceTime with the pontiff since a high-profile and high-octane debate uh, inside the U.S. Bishops' Conference about the idea of denying communion to pro-choice Catholic politicians. Now, of course, the most prominent pro-choice Catholic politician in America right now is the President of the United States, Joseph Biden. So another way of saying this is uh, the U.S. bishops have been debating turning President Biden away at the communion line. Utterly predictable, therefore, that Pope Francis would get a question. He got the question, and he took it. His, an his answer was fascinating. Uh, there were actually five separate elements to this answer. First, he said that he personally has never turned anyone away at the communion line, told a little story about when he was a young priest in Argentina. Uh, he went to an old folks' home to celebrate Mass. He asked them if everybody wanted communion. Everybody raised their hands, so he gave everybody communion. After the Mass, one of the ladies came up to him and said, Gee, thanks, Father, I'm actually Jewish. Uh, didn't seem to break his stride. Uh, so, point one. Uh, Pope Francis himself has never denied anyone communion. Point two, he said abortion is murder. Uh, he said that even scientists will tell you uh, that a fetus's organs are fully formed at three weeks of development. Bottom line, abortion is murder, grave sin, full stop. Uh, third, Pope Francis said uh, that because the Eucharist is for people who are in the community of believers, Anyone who is excommunicated, therefore, can't get communion because they're not part of the community. Now, he didn't directly say that if you participate in an abortion, you are ipso facto excommunicated. Uh, but clearly, the sequence in his answer would imply that. However, fourth, he went on to say that there's a difference between being excommunicated and what he called temporarily excommunicated. Now, look, I am no canon lawyer. Uh, I haven't taken graduate seminars in the Code of Canon Law, but I'm pretty sure that is not a formal legal category uh, under the Code. Uh, but what Francis seemed to mean is that there is a difference between somebody who has rejected the faith on principle uh, and somebody who has committed some grave sin that separates uh, them from communion, but leaving open the possibility of conversion, penance, uh, and, and reintegration into the community. Okay, so that was the fourth point. Uh, and then fifth, he emphasized the distinction between the pastoral and the political, basically saying bishops 
are pastors. They are supposed to reflect the compassion and the openness of God. They should never do anything that contradicts those values. And the minute that they depart from that path, they become a politician, not a pastor. Now, you add all that up, uh, and it seems pretty clear that what Francis was saying uh, was uh, that, look, abortion is bad. There's not going to be any fudging on our teaching on abortion. But at the same time, I don't like communion bans. I don't like turning people away. That's a political move, not a pastoral one. Uh, Now, uh, that seemed to be his message. On the other hand, it was nuanced enough and indirect enough uh, that he, because he didn't actually say, you may not deny communion to someone. Uh, so if you're a bishop in the United States who is inclined to support communion bans, you can look at what the Pope said and say, well, there's nothing in there that contradicts my position. Uh, if you're a bishop who is inclined to oppose them, of course, you would feel confirmed in that. Uh, all right. Second, gay marriage. Uh, Pope Francis got a question on this as well. Uh, and once again, uh, there were several elements to his answer. He began by saying that sacramental marriage, meaning marriage inside the Catholic Church, the sacrament of marriage, is between a man and a woman. And the church cannot be asked to do anything that contradicts its nature. Now, of course, the thing is, the question really wasn't about sacramental marriage. Uh, it was about gay, civil gay marriage, as it now exists in the United States, most nations of Western Europe, and so on. Second, the Pope went on to say, uh, now, there are, uh, outside sacramental marriage, there are states that have adopted measures to protect the rights uh, of same-sex people, to protect their inheritance rights and health care and so on. Uh, And he said, of course, people's rights need to be protected. Uh, The suggestion there uh, was that things such as civil unions uh, would be acceptable uh, from the Pope's point of view. And, I mean, he went on to make some other points, but that was the heart of it. Uh, Now, the thing of it is, that answer, as as interesting as it is, doesn't really address the, the main questions people these days are asking on this front. Because the questions are, suppose you are a bishop or a pastor in a jurisdiction, whether it's a country or a state or a municipality, that adopts civil gay marriage. Do you have to oppose it? Are you obliged to oppose it? Now, one way to read the Pope's remarks is he was making a distinction between the sacrament of marriage, as the Catholic Church understands and practices it, and the civil sphere. In that case, maybe you just don't have anything to say. Maybe you would take the position that, well, uh, that's up to the state, uh, and as long as it doesn't impinge upon the church's practice, we're fine. Another position would be, of course, that the Pope did emphasize that marriage, as the church understands it, is between a man and a woman, and a civil institution of marriage, uh, in in other cases, uh, would therefore be morally problematic. Didn't really address it, left it open. The other question, of course, people are asking today is, okay, obviously the church can't celebrate gay marriage. But when a gay marriage takes place at the county courthouse or the local courthouse, uh, in other words, when it takes place in the civil sphere, can the church bless it? Is it okay for a pastor to bless that couple, not to celebrate their marriage, but simply to bless the accomplished fact of their civil marriage? Again, the Pope's answer could be seen as cutting both ways, doesn't really directly address it. So, point is, while the Pope has given us food for thought, 
uh, on this front really has not settled the two most burning questions of the moment. Uh, and finally, the Pope on COVID vaccines. He began by, now of course, from the beginning, the Pope has been a champion of the prescribed medical response to the COVID pandemic. Uh, and he's been a champion of vaccines. He's been vaccinated himself, had all his personnel in the Vatican vaccinated. Uh, so no real surprise uh, that this was a pro-vaccine answer. Uh, he began by saying that uh, humanity has always had a positive relationship with vaccines. Presumably, he was referring to things like the smallpox vaccine and the polio vaccine, which are today, of course, seen as great humanitarian breakthroughs. Now, what he left out of the picture, of course, uh, is that when they were introduced, each of those vaccines were tremendously controversial. Uh, in the 19th century, newspaper editorial pages around the world campaigned against the smallpox, vac smallpox vaccine, predicting, among other things, that it was going to cause human children to be born with uh, the heads of cows, because the genetic material of cattle, of course, was used in the development uh, of the smallpox vaccine. Uh, so at the time, actually, much like the COVID vaccine, there was tremendous controversy. Over time, however, their, their benefits became indisputably clear. Uh, now, so in other words, the Pope basically gave a pro-vax answer, no huge surprise. What was interesting uh, is that he kind of went out of his way uh, to take a swipe at what he called deniers in the College of Cardinals. Uh, the word he actually used in Italian was negazionisti. Uh, negationists, right? Um, which is the word that Italians typically use for Holocaust denier. Uh, and he said that one of these, negazionisti, actually is in the hospital. Didn't name names, but it, the apparent reference was to American Cardinal Raymond Burke, who actually is not presently in the hospital, uh, but was in the hospital over the summer. He contracted COVID. It was quite serious. For a time, he was on a ventilator and in ICU. He's now out and apparently on the way to recovery. Uh, now, what was interesting about this is that Cardinal Burke is, of course, well known uh, as one of the, if not the, leading conservative critics and antagonists uh, of Pope Francis on, on many fronts. Some people thought uh, that this was a somewhat gratuitous sort of act of, I don't know, uh, punching Burke while he was down. Um, and it, look, let me just say this, uh, for those who are inclined uh, to be hostile to Pope Francis, the fact that he appeared to go out of his way to take a poke in the eye uh, at Cardinal Burke, it's probably not going to calm them down, okay? Finally, big piece of geopolitical news in the last week is the breathtaking in some ways, announcement by the United States, the United Kingdom, and Australia uh, of this new strategic alliance, one centerpiece of which is helping Australia to develop nuclear submarines. Now, this kind of came out of a clear blue sky, right? We, we weren't quite expecting this. Uh, but uh, if it stands, and of course there has been tremendous backlash to it, the French, who are ever ready to get into a fit of peak over something, uh, got into a fit of peak over this one. The French, who are forever ready to get into a fit of, fit of peak over something, got into a fit of peak over this. The French foreign minister described it as a stab in the back. President Emmanuel Macron has recalled his ambassadors from, from Washington and Canberra. Supposedly, Macron and Biden are going to spe speak this week. 
you know, we will see how this plays out. But if it stands, this is probably the single most important geopolitical move of the last 60 years. Because for those last 60 years, the, the game has been the West against everybody else, uh, against the bad guy. So it was the West against the Soviets. Then it was the West against global jihad. In any event, the cornerstone of it all has been North America and Europe acting together. Now, with one fell swoop, the United States, the UK, and Australia have, have shaken the kaleidoscope. Uh, and now it's the great Anglo-Saxon powers uh, versus whoever the bad guy is. And the bad guy of the moment, of course, is China. Uh, so it now appears that the new geopolitical chess match uh, will be Anglo-Saxons versus Chinese. The, the question that raises, of course, is, well, what happens to Europe? What's the role of Europe uh, in all of this? And that question is being raised at a moment when the prime minister of Italy is de facto poised to become the new leader of Europe post Angela Merkel. Prime Minister Mario Draghi is arguably the most powerful and respected leader on the European stage today. He recently finished on Time Magazine's list of the 100 most influential people in the world. Uh, he is celebrated for his aggressive response to COVID, his economic leadership of Italy, poised to have about 6.5% growth this year, a new record. Uh, public debt here is going to be less than 10% of GDP for 2021, which is mind-blowing. Uh, and uh, also praised for the kind of steady hand at the rudder uh, Draghi has supplied uh, during the, the turbulence uh, of the last few months uh, internationally. Uh, all of that means uh, that Italy is now poised to play an influential role at a time when the future of Europe seems up for grabs. And at the same moment, Pope Francis remains arguably the most relevant and influential spiritual leader uh, in global politics and global diplomacy. Uh, so that raises the question uh, of whether the Vatican and Draghi uh, could together push Europe in the direction of the vision that the Vatican has always had for Europe, which is that, that Europe would become a legitimate third way in global affairs, that it would be a bridge between East and West, uh, that it would be a voice for humanitarianism and restraint uh, in conflict situations, uh, and that in general, it would promote a kind of enlightened Christian Democrat social agenda for the construction of a new world order. Now, that may be a pipe dream, but I submit this. If there was ever a moment in the last 60 years in which it was at least plausible to think that might happen, this is probably it. Uh, and therefore, the next few months uh, are going to be fascinating to watch uh, in terms of how all of this develops. All right, that's our show for this week. You can find full coverage of all these stories on the Crux site. That is cruxnow.com, cruxnow.com. We will be back here next Monday. What I want you to use your week to do is that if you enjoy last week in the church, if you like what we're serving up here, use this time to go onto the social media platform of your choice uh, and give us a thumbs up, give us a, a like, Give us a retweet. Write a nice little review of us someplace. Do something. Uh, go forth and make disciples of all the nations because we are trying to get in front of as many eyeballs as possible. 
because we are devoted to the mission of recycling stale news to get maximum bang out of our buck. Have a fantastic and blessed week. Stay safe, stay healthy. We will talk to you again soon.